Join me in prayer as we bow our hearts before our Heavenly Father. Well, Father, we come to you as your people, people who have been bought by Christ's precious blood. We do not come by our own strength, by our own power, because of our own good works that commend ourselves before you. No, we, we come in the name of Jesus. So, Lord, we want to begin our prayers in Jesus' name as we end them as well, because we come through him. We ask, most righteous Father, that you would grant us, as we look at your word, the gift of illumination, that we might see wonderful things in your word. And as we approach a passage that might be challenging on several different levels, challenging to understand, because it might not be the most clear part of your word, and challenging to actually live out and obey, because it calls us to do hard things, Lord, we pray that your spirit would be with us to to guide us into a right understanding, that we may see your truth, that you have revealed to us in your word, and that we might uh, live our lives accordingly, that it might change us, that you might call us into uh, a right relationship with you. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I want you to start out with a little bit of audience participation here. Uh, If you're here this morning, and you either, A, have, you might be a visitor, maybe you've never read the Bible before, but you anticipate that the Bible would have difficult things to understand, or you're here and you've read the Bible before, you're a Christian, um, uh, and you've read things in the Bible that you just think, man, I don't understand it. Raise your hand if you're in one of those two categories. Okay. Pretty much everybody. I could say raise your hand if you're lying to get everybody else. Uh, I think the, the Bible has difficult parts to understand. And I, I begin this way because that happened to me this week as I was looking at the passage for this morning. Um, it was hard for me to understand. And to be honest, I don't think I settled. I never, didn't get this clear sense where I know for sure what this means. The passage I took as somewhat uh, confusing. But, now, uh, if if you're coming for a while, you'll know that I don't usually begin sermons like that. This is the first sermon I've begun like that since I think I've ever been preaching. Uh, The reason why is that most of the Bible is clear. Most of the Bible we can understand. The Bible is God's uh, communication with us that we may understand it and come into a right relationship with him. That's what the Bible is, and it therefore would stand to reason that most of the Bible would be clear and would be able to be understood, and most of it is, I believe. However, just because the main message of the Bible, how we come into a right relationship with God through Christ's death on the cross for us, just because the main message is clear, doesn't mean that every single passage will be equally Uh, understandable to us. Some portions could be a little bit difficult, and I think we've stumbled upon one of those this morning. Um, So so do we just, what do we make of that? Well, I bring that up for a couple of reasons. One, so that you know, if you you hear what I'm saying and you think, well, man, I'm not sure that's exactly what Paul's saying, please know that I'm not sure that's exactly what Paul's saying either. Uh, But I want to encourage you to study the Bible for yourself. I mean, really, you need to stand before God based on your understanding of the Bible. And you can't say, well, the pastor said 
And therefore, that's uh, why you lived a certain way or understood a certain way. No, you need to read the Bible because it's a message from God for everybody to understand. And and you need to stand upon that interpretation that, that you come to. Certainly, God gives us the church and preaching to help us with that. But we're never supposed to just blindly accept everything that we hear. For instance, in the book of Acts, Paul was talking to a certain group of people that the Bible says were more noble than others. And here's why. Because they searched the scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. And if they searched the scriptures to see what Paul said is true, how much more should you search the scriptures to make sure what I say is true? We should never just blindly accept what anybody who gets up and says uh, is, is actually the right interpretation. Amen. Yes. Uh, but I also say that to encourage you then to look at the scriptures and to know that there is some debate about how this passage is to be understood. But yet, nevertheless, I think we can come to um, a right understanding and at least say true things that can be, can be substantiated by other parts of scripture, even if it's not exactly what Paul means here. So anyway, if you have your Bibles, please open to Philippians chapter 2, because we do want to look at the passage. If it's unclear, we definitely want to look at it. And here's the issue, as I read before. The passage says, to work out your salvation. Now, what makes this passage somewhat hard to understand is that's the only time language like that really ever appears in Scripture. Work out your salvation. And... Let's start with what is clear here. One of the things that we can say, I think, is that work out your salvation is Paul saying, in other words, for them to obey the commands that he has given. Because look at the passage. Um, He says, as you've, uh, not only as you've obeyed in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation. What he's basically saying there is, hey, guys. You need to be doing the right thing whether I'm there or not. Paul's saying when he was there, they were obeying. Now that he's not there, they need to also obey. And the way he tells them to obey is he tells them to work out their salvation. So I think grammatically, working out their salvation, the way that they work out their salvation is by obeying the commands that Paul has told them to do. I think that's probably clear from the the grammar. But then the question comes, okay, what is he telling them to obey? And I think the best way to understand that is to look at this passage in light of the overall context, which is why I read all of chapter 2. And we see that from uh, verse 12. He says, therefore, my beloved. That's how this passage starts. Therefore. Whenever you see therefore, you have to look what the therefore is there for. And you have to go back and see what came before it. That, that's the way to, to read that section. And what comes before it, I think we have to go even further than chapter 2, all the way back to the end of chapter 1, verse 26 or 27, where Paul says to live as worthy citizens of the gospel. And, and citizenship brings up this idea that they are part of a community. The citizens are people who belong to something bigger than themselves. They have ownership in the community. They have a responsibility toward that community. That's what it means to be a citizen and to live as a, as a good citizen, is to take care of that community that they're entrusted with. And then all of the exhortations that flow out of that have the idea, basically, of what they should do for the community as they are walking as worthy citizens. So, for instance, in chapter 2, we start reading things like, be of the same mind. 
Do not look out for your own interests, but also the interests of others. Strive together with the same purpose. I think, therefore, that when Paul is telling them to obey, it makes the most sense to look at the the immediate context of the commands that he's given them. And all the commands that he's given them are commands about how they should act toward one another in the community. They should be kind to one another. They should encourage one another. They should not do what is just best for them, but is best for the community. All the commands that Paul has given are commands that are applied in the context of community as they relate to one another. And therefore, this is getting to how I think we should understand that phrase, work out your own salvation. What I, my best understanding, my, my best attempt here at this, is that what Paul is saying here, when he tells them to work out their salvation, he is telling them, to obey these commands about how they should interact with one another and therefore not let their community be destroyed by uh, internal strife and division. I mean, if we read the book overall, we get this sense that even though they were a good church, they were a church that loved Paul and Paul loved him, even though that was the case, the, the community was threatened by internal divisions. What we read at the very end of the book, Paul calls out two women who are struggling to get along. All these calls for unity lead us to believe that, uh, that the community was threatened by some sort of internal division and squabbles and problems. And therefore, Paul tells them to obey the commands toward unity, obey the commands to get along with one another. And in so doing, they will save their community. They will work out the salvation of the community. Uh, I think... This is similar to what Paul tells the Galatian church that was actually further along the road to their destruction. Paul tells them, if you continue to bite and devour one another, take care that you are not destroyed by each other. It's pretty strong language there. See, I think that being destroyed is the opposite of them working out their own salvation, of of really saving the community from what could be uh, a wreck, a, a It would blow up. It would internally explode. Now, it also makes me think that this is probably the best interpretation, although, as I said before, I'm not 100% confident in it, is that this word for work out is a very strong word in the sense that it puts lots of emphasis upon what we do to achieve our goal. Uh, You could also translate it to accomplish, accomplish your salvation. If it means work out, it means work out in the sense that you would tell a a student to work these math problems out. In other words, solve it. Bring it to completion. Accomplish these things. That's what the word means. Work out your salvation. Accomplish your salvation. And I think it would be odd, although maybe not impossible, at least somewhat odd, for Paul to be telling us to work out our salvation, to accomplish our salvation, if it was our salvation in the sense of our eternal salvation, being saved from God's wrath and judgment. The Bible is clear that Christ is the one who has accomplished that salvation. So what I think, not 100% positive, what I think Paul is telling us here, the, the salvation in view here, is to keep the community, the Christian community, from being destroyed by internal problems. And, and the way they do that is by obeying these commands to, to care for one another, to encourage one another, to strive together in unity. 
Now, um, just a, another point about why it doesn't necessarily mean you know, eternal salvation. The, the word saved, what it means, always, you know, what you're saved from, always has to do with the context, right? If I told you that you know, I was swimming out in the ocean, I was surrounded by sharks, and then suddenly I was saved, you, you probably don't think I, I accepted Jesus as my savior there in that context. You, you think that I was not shark food. Right? Because to be saved always depends on what's threatening you. And Paul here is clear that, I think it's clear, that the, the threat, the biggest threat is the threat to the community. So saved in this context could mean their community coming out okay. Now, what does this tell us? I think, I think if this is what Paul is saying, it tells us something very important. It tells us, that the community, the Christian community, the church, is threatened by internal problems. That that's something that is a perennial challenge and threat to the church. Now, think about it. If it was so for this church, they had a lot of things going for them. They were taught by Paul, so they had really good teaching. And they also had mild persecution, which actually helps the church. When the church is under some form of persecution, that means that nobody's going to sign up to be a church member unless they're really serious because it might you know, cause them problems. The church is therefore going to be very pure in its, in its membership and who is part of it. Those are things that actually help the church. The church had a lot of things going for it, yet they were still plagued by these internal struggles, internal problems, so much so that Paul had to tell them to to work out their salvation so that they were not destroyed by it. It tells us that that there was a weakness to it. Uh, Let me tell you a a story that I thought of as I was looking at this. Uh, I I laugh at this story now. Uh, Years ago when I was dating Becky, who later became my wife, I spent a summer in Canada working with a church up there. And during that time, when I was uh, in Canada, her brother was working at a radio station, and she got this really sweet idea to request a song on the radio and then record it and send it up to me. And that was, that was very sweet. I was touched by it. Well, I thought, I will, I will return that. I will request a song for her. And, and there was a song that we had both liked and that I knew, and I thought I was requesting that song. It had something to do, if I remember correctly, about the majesty of God and creation. So I thought I was requesting that song. The song I actually requested was, was quite a different song, a song about uh, two people who couldn't get along and their relationship <laughs> broke up. And, and the, chorus goes, the chorus goes, we must be awfully small and not as strong as we think we are. <laughs> Thankfully, she married me anyway. And, but yet, I, and <laughs> ironically, that song helped made me more true than I realized because I wasn't as strong or at least as smart as I thought I was. And yet I think that's the same takeaway we should have from this story of the Philippians, that they were not that strong, and we are not as strong as we think we are either at times. If we think that, yeah, internal problems, those things that could threaten the church, then that's not going to happen here. No, if, if it was the case for the Philippians that Paul had to warn them to be vigilant, to work hard so that their community was saved from the problems that could threaten it. How much more should we take that as a command for ourselves? 
And we also must realize that the Christian community is so essential to who we are as believers. God has designed the Christian life to be lived in a community, to be lived with other brothers and sisters in Christ. It is important. It is essential. Therefore, we should take this command seriously and work hard for it. Now, in the remainder of our time together, I want us to see three things about how we are to work for our salvation, keeping in mind, thinking that it's the salvation of the community. Um, and we'll see it from this passage. We're going to first see what we, we must do to work out our salvation. The second is what attitude should we have as we seek to work out our salvation. And third, why, in the end, we will work out our salvation. First, what must we do? And as I said before, what I think Paul is referring to is all the commands that he said before. And by the way, even if you aren't convinced that salvation here means the salvation of the community, I think all of these things still apply as good things to do. So I think it all fits either way. But, but Paul gives clear commands that we are called to do. And let me uh, just read those commands to you, backing all the way up to uh, the end of chapter 1. First, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Or you could translate it, live as citizens worthy of the gospel. Second command, stand firm in one spirit. Strive together side by side for the faith of the gospel. Be of the same mind. Have the same love. Be in full accord. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Look out not only for your own interests, but also the interests of others. And then after giving those commands, Paul brings up the example of Jesus. He is the supreme example of the someone who worked for the salvation of his community. He did not hold his own status as God with all his glory as something that he was unwilling to yield to his father's purposes for our salvation. No, He died to save the Christian community. And Paul specifically highlights in that passage how Christ was obedient. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And I think Paul wants to make the connection there between Jesus' obedience and our obedience. As Christ was obedient, even when it was hard, so also God calls us to follow in his footsteps and be obedient even when it's hard for us as well. And friends, we need to get used to the idea that the Bible commands us to do certain things. Maybe today we don't like commands, we like suggestions, we like examples. Well, the Bible gives those, but it also gives commands. And there's only one thing to do with commands, you obey them. And it doesn't matter how we feel. We can't say, well, I'll start considering the interests of others when somebody starts considering my interests. No, we just Obey what the Bible tells us to do. That's what we do. It's not easy, but that's the call upon us. Nothing less than full obedience to the commands of God. Think about how that's so essential in order to make the community what it is. I mean, what makes the Christian community Christian? What is distinctly Christian about our community? Well, friends, the Bible would say that it's that we are treating one another as Christ has treated us. 
Jesus said, they will know you are Christians, or they, they will know you are my disciples by your love, the love they have for one another. The Christian community is Christian because they exemplify the love that Christ has for us toward each other. That's what makes it the Christian community. And given that, it then falls on each one of us to, to obey these commands for how we ought to live with each other in order to make our community the Christian community that it ought to be. Our family likes to go camping. And sometimes in the state parks in Maryland, you, you pull in and there's, there's Yogi Bear. And it says, only you can prevent fire, forest fires. Kind of Paul is saying the same thing here about only you can save your Christian community. Uh, that's, that's what we must do. Now, we might enjoy, you know, other people can't do it. So we might enjoy the fellowship we have with Infinity Church. And hopefully they'll be here with us for the Martin Luther King service on the 19th. They're a great blessing to us. But they can't save our community. We appreciate the help we've had from Capitol Hill Baptist Church, how they founded us 60 years ago. And we appreciate their speakers that they provide. But at the end of the day, something from outside of us can't save our Christian community. No, it's when each of us obey the commands that God has called us to and how we treat one another. So this is a serious call to action, a very personal call to action, one that we have to get ownership of and do. Second, what should be our attitude as we obey these commands? This passage tells us something about the attitude that we ought to have. Look at verse 12. He says, As you have obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Think about what he's saying there. Put yourself maybe in the shoes of the the Christians in that community. It's probably not too hard to obey these commands when Paul is right there with them. Right? Think about it. If you have Paul standing there with you in your community, in your church business meeting, in your committee meeting, whatever, and you know that Paul had been beaten and stripped and suffered greatly to bring you the gospel, it's probably makes that harder then to, uh, to start being you know, filled with petty disagreements or start thinking about what that other person didn't do or what that other person did. When, when you see how much Paul did and, and how he's not concerned about his own rights and how he's exemplifying Christ. The other thing is that Paul is quick to call people out for their sin. He does that in this book at the end with, with two women who aren't getting along. How, how would you like your names to be forever put in God's holy word because you, you weren't getting along with somebody else? I mean, assume that they're believers, but they're believers in heaven. I mean, man, I did not know my name was going to go in scripture because of what I did. Paul is quick to, to call people out for their sins. Um, they don't want to be called out by Paul either. So it's, it's somewhat easy to obey these commands when Paul is actually there. But um, it's harder then to obey when Paul's absent. And what Paul is telling them to do is, no, they need to be quick to obey and careful to obey when Paul is absent as well. And the reason for this, I think, is implied. I think that the reason is because God is there. Notice what he says in verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And fear and trembling is the response we have when God is present. Verse, uh, Exodus 15, fear and trembling will fall upon them because of the greatness of God's arm. 
Isaiah 19, the Egyptians will tremble and be afraid before the hand of the Lord that shakes over them. Fear and trembling is our response to the presence of God. It's used other times in scriptures too when, they stand, when you stand before somebody who is, who is great and awesome. And that's what Paul is saying they need to do because God is there. That makes sense if we see how Jesus has just been described. Think back to the passages that we talked about over Advent season. And Jesus is the one who is given a name above every name. He's pretty high up there. He is the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. This is the greatness of Jesus. And he is there in the community. Jesus is clear. When we gather together in his name, he is there. The church is his body. Assembled together in his name, it is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God is here with us. What God? This God, this Christ, who is the absolute Lord. He is there in our midst as we assemble together as God's people. And therefore, Paul says, even if I'm not there, you need to know who is and then when you interact with one another, because when you're interacting with one another, you're, you're really interacting with Jesus. You should have a sense of fear and trembling. My Christian friends, I wonder, have you thought deeply about how solemn and awesome of a thing it is to assemble together as God's people with the promise that he is there when we do that? And have you thought about How awesome of a thing it is to then interact with one another as the body of Christ, knowing that when we interact as the body of Christ, we're we're interacting with Christ. He is there with us. And how we treat one another says something about how we wish to treat Christ. Friends, do you take full account of the fact that the church is not just some human institution? Human institutions come and go all the time. Governments come and go all the time. But the church is God's special possession. It is the bride of Christ. It is the body of Christ. It is that which Christ has purchased for himself with his own precious blood. Don't you think he cares about whether or not our actions within the church contribute to the church's salvation or the church's destruction? Don't you think God cares And does that produce in you a sense of fear and trembling as we gather together in his name? Well, friends, it should. You know, we are a relatively small group of people here this morning. Actually, larger than I kind of thought it would be when I saw the weather, which is good. But but it's not that large. And yet we're here together, gathering together in Jesus' name. And that is an awesome and great thing. And we should be very careful that everything we do together, especially as the church, is for the church's salvation, not destruction. Listen to something that Paul says to the Corinthians, who are actually much further along on the process of destroying themselves. Paul says this in chapter 3, verse 7. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. The temple is God's people, right? And if they don't save themselves, but they destroy themselves, God says he's not going to be happy. And he threatens to destroy the very ones who destroy them. 
So friends, work out your salvation. Or God will not be very happy. So what have we seen here? One, we are called to accomplish our salvation. And that means obey the commands that God has given us to do. Second, how should we do this? We should do this with a sense of reverence and awe for God. Third, why will we do this? And here we look at the verse 13. Let me start reading, though, at the end of verse 12, and then we'll pick up at verse 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now this kind of throws a curveball to what we've seen here. It's a good curveball. Interesting, perplexing. I want us to see it's tremendously encouraging, but it's, it gets us thinking. See, verse 12, Paul has really laid it on that we have to do what we need to do to, to save the community, accomplish your salvation. It would be difficult to think of a stronger way that God could have, Paul could have put this on the shoulders of the believers to actually do. He's entrusted it to them. It is their job to accomplish their salvation. But then Paul adds, for God is at work, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Wait a minute. Whose job is it to work out our salvation, to achieve our salvation? Is it our job or is it God's job? Well, it seems to be both. Notice how three times the word work is used here. It's verse 12. Work out your salvation. Verse 2, verse um, 13. For God is at work in you. And what is he at work in you to do? To work. See that? We need to work because God is at work. And he's at work in us so that we work. Now notice it's not like it's a 50-50 deal where... We have some things we do. God has some things he, he does. We do our part. God does his part. And kind of together, we make it happen. That's not really what this describes. It's more like 100% God, because he's at work to, for us to work. He makes us work. And it's 100% us, because there's a clear command for us to work. Now, I'll be the first to admit, how do, how do we reconcile those? I don't know. Don't have that figured out, how God's sovereignty and our human responsibility fit together. I just know that it's clear in Scripture that God is the one who takes responsibility for working out our salvation. And then we are the ones who are also told to do it. But does it matter that I don't have it all figured out? And I don't think you have it all figured out either, by the way. Does that matter? No, because God has it figured out. If I were God and didn't have it figured out, well, then there's a problem. But, but I'm not God. Um, so it's not a problem. He has it figured out how verse 12 relates to verse 13. We just trust in the fact that he is working and we're grateful for that. And then we pull up our sleeves and obey the commands that he has called us to do with the trust that he is the one working. So it'll happen. It'll happen according to his timing. It'll happen in his good pleasure. And this is encouraging because, really, the work that he's called us to do is important, right? And it is downright hard. I mean, to obey these commands consistently, to live like God's people, it is not a walk in the park. It's not a piece of cake. It's hard. What's the encouragement? That God is on your side. God is working, and he will make it happen. Notice in the end, God delights in it, too. 
It is to, we are, he works in us to will and to work. Why? For his good pleasure. God takes pleasure in the obedience of his people that he has worked in and through them. Oh, that's encouraging. It's also humbling, though. Because at the end of the day, the good things that we do, we can't ultimately, in the end, point back to us. Ultimately, in the end, it points back to God. And that's actually really helpful as we relate in the community because we can't, it rules out any sense of pride. It rules out that sense of, wow, look at me. Look how essential I am to make the church actually happen. No, because what we do, even when we do really good things that help and bless the church, well, those are the things that God has done in and through us. Those are the things that have been done because God is the one who works in us to work those things out. And he could have easily picked somebody else to work through as well as he picked us. No, we, we are grateful then that God has allowed us, he has chosen to use us to bring that about. But in the end, the glory and praise goes to him. So friends, that removes any sense of pride in our own accomplishments. It removes any sense that we can have of how essential I am in the church. No, it makes us all, it all points back to the glory of God and how he is working. So friends, what do we take from this passage? Well, I think we take two things, no matter how we understand exactly what's going on here. We take one hand that God has given us a serious command, something we must do. We must obey these commands that he has given us for our salvation. And then we take the idea that he is at work accomplishing it. He is at work working it out in and through us. So all the credit and glory goes to him. See, here's the good news of the gospel, that God has not sent his son merely to die on the cross to give us forgiveness of our sins, that that the sins that we've done against God do not condemn us to hell forever. That's not the only thing he has done. He's done that, but that's not the only thing he's done. He has also sent his spirit in us that we would work that we would be constructive members of his body to reveal his glory and spread his name and his fame throughout the world. That's what he's done. Let's rely upon him and then pull up our sleeves and do the work that God has called us to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for including us in your work. Lord, you could have just worked it out all on your own. And in the end, it is all because of you. But yet, in a way that we cannot fully understand, but we do appreciate, you have included us in your plan, that we would be part of that salvation that you work out. So, Lord, we pray that we would be careful and and motivated to work out that salvation that you've called us to do. And we pray also that you would be working in and through us so that it all points to your glory and your praise. Make this community a place where Christ's name is known and it is so apparent that he is here and he is present in the way we treat one another. We pray that we'd be very grounded upon the gospel and upon Christ in that way. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.